Okay, so, well, um, are you ready? All right, well, let's, let's just, uh, let's, let's turn our, our thought to the Lord for just a moment. I just, I want you to just close your eyes and, and just get a picture of Jesus in your mind's eye right now. And just look at him face to face and just, just say, I love you. Say it out loud. Say, I love you. I love you, Jesus. Lord, your presence is what we require. Your presence, God, is what we desire. Without you, God, this journey is impossible. Without you, we have no hope. So we stand here face to face with you, Jesus. And we say we love you. And we need you. And we need your presence. You're always with us. You're in us, God. But we need to feel your nearness. To give us strength and hope and courage. Because it's time for us to grow up, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I have an incredible amount of, of um, ground to cover this morning, so that's why we've switched things up with all the announcements we had. And, and I really, I just need to get through um, the second part of uh, my message from last week, which was, uh, it's, it's called Grow Up. So if you didn't know that. Um, but last week, um, just to review just real quickly, I talked about how... Um, I, was, I performed some reverse psychology, and so I've been giving us um, the ways in which we can stay immature forever in hopes that it will repulse you and disgust you enough to, to really not go that way, because I really don't want to stay immature. Do you? No. no? Are you sure? Yeah. Okay, okay. So, so, uh, so just going back to you know, last week, I talked about um, a couple of things that we can do to guarantee that we will sp- stay spiritual babies. And everybody remember the first one. Abuse grace. Last week I talked about if you want to stay immature, if you want to experience little to no victory in your life, it's important that you abuse grace. And you, there's four kinds of grace that we can abuse. And the first one was greasy grace, right? Which gives us the permission to... Uh, Take, to not uh, take God seriously. Greasy Grace says, you know what? Ah, God, I don't really have to take you that seriously. It's a suggestion at best. We talked about um, sleazy grace, which is the, uh, gives us a license to really just do whatever we feel like. You know, it's all okay. I, no matter what I do, grace is covering me. And then I talked about cheesy grace, which is where we get things like uh, sloppy agape, right? It's, it's where universalism comes from. It's, it's this grace that says, whatever you call God doesn't matter because all roads lead to heaven. It's universalism. And we're not about that, are we? Come on, everybody's saying no. All right, and the last one was measly grace, which is this thing that says, well, you know, God's grace got me saved, but I really got to work hard to keep it here. And that's not God either, is it? So if you want to stay mature, practice those kinds of grace in your life. 
Now, the other thing I shared was what? Practice little sins. Because we know how to avoid the great big ones, right? We know that murder's wrong, and we don't want to do that one, and we don't want to do the, you know, stealing and, and, you know, just the biggies. But it's the little sins that if we will be faithful to practice those things, we will stay spiritually immature forever. And we went through all kinds of scripture about what some of those little bitty sins, you know, like jealousy. I mean, we're really okay with that, unfortunately. You know, envy. You know, telling, you know, just little white lies. Uh, you know, uh, just that kind of stuff. We're just, we're all right with it, you know. Make, being in competition with each other. We were just, we're okay. And so if we want to stay young forever, you got to practice little sins. All right? So let's start today. All right. And I am stepping on your feet, and that's okay. Right, you're, you're not happy. That's all right. It'll be over soon. But today I want to continue talking about these five areas. And it's not just these five, but I've just come up with five. These five things that we can do to stay spiritually immature. And we talked about abusing grace. We talked about practicing little sins. And the next principle that I want to talk about is this one, okay? And write this down because this is a really important one. If you want to stay immature, you need to practice disobedience. If you want to stay in spiritual diapers for the rest of your life, it's very important that you practice disobedience. Now, what do I mean when I say disobedience? Well, here's like a really simple uh, definition of disobedience, okay? And I'll, I'll say it and say it again so you can write it down if you want. Simple definition of disobedience is an unwillingness to comply with the guidance of authority An unwillingness to comply with the guidance of authority, especially a neglect for God's will. Let me say that again. Disobedience is an unwillingness to comply with the guidance of authority, especially the neglect of God's will. Now, in the Bible, there are stories upon stories of how people of God have disobeyed the Lord and never, it never ended well, right? Now, the first and probably most critical act of disobedience happened way at the very beginning, way at the very beginning of the story of humanity, right? So let's look at Genesis chapter 2. We're just going to take a trip to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And then the Lord commanded the, uh, commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will die. So, right from the start, right from the very beginning, God gave man instructions for life. At the very beginning of creation, God presented man with a choice. 
You can obey my instructions and live free forever. Or you can disobey and become a slave to death. Choice is yours. Obey and live, disobey and die. Well, let's see what he chose. As if we didn't already know. In chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, The serpent was more crafty than all of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Surely you're not going to die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then both of them their eyes were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This was the moment when spiritual death entered the human race. This one act of disobedience launched generations of suffering of sickness, slavery, unspeakable crimes against humanity. Right here, one act of disobedience. Now I want to look at Ephesians 2. In verse 1 it says, And he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. In, one, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Now, there is like a, a wide range of what disobedience can look like. Disobedience has many degrees, okay? So, what we just read here in Ephesians chapter 2, when it's referring to the sons of disobedience, it's talking about those who practice the ultimate disobedience of not receiving Jesus as payment for their sins. Now, it says the prince of the air, who is Satan, has worked into their hearts to reject Jesus as the Messiah. And for that, they have been labeled sons of disobedience. But hold on. If Satan cannot get us to uh, deny Christ, well, then he will move on to smaller acts of disobedience to keep us immature and ineffective. Sometimes Satan doesn't even have to do anything at all. You know, because it comes naturally for us, right? <laughs> right. 
It's, it's natural for us to want to disobey. It's, it's in our carnal, it's in our fleshly nature to be inclined to not follow God's instructions. Now, remember when I talked about um, the weapons of our warfare a few weeks ago? About growing up and becoming militant? Rattle your head if you remember. Yes? Okay. Let's look at that again, all right? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 3. It says, For though we live in the world, we, wage, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Now, inside every one of us is the tendency to disobey God. It's just there. And according to 2 Corinthians 10, the problem is where? It's in our head. The problem is in our head. It's in our mind. It's it's in our thoughts. What are we supposed to be taking captive, it says? Every thought. Every thought is to be taken and made obedient to Christ. Everybody say obedient. Say it really loud. Take every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Now, disobedience is a problem. It's a problem with our thinking. Every act of disobedience involves, and here's this, this is is important. Write this. Every act of disobedience involves setting the desires of the flesh above the will of God. Every act of disobedience involves setting the desires of the flesh above the will of God. And Paul says, it's time to fight. There's another famous story about disobedience in the Bible, and it's about King Saul. And he was told by God to go out and to totally destroy the wicked Amalekites. And so, in his instruction from the Lord to go out and make war, he, the Lord told him to not leave one single creature alive. Everyone and everything was to die. Every animal and every human being of the Amalekites was to be destroyed. So Saul goes out to battle and he defeats them just as he was supposed to. And Saul destroys everything but their king, King Agag. And he doesn't destroy the very best sheep and cattle. So he's come back from war and he's all happy and proud. And well, guess what happens? The prophet Samuel, who in the Old Testament, that's how you heard from God only. It's through the prophet. Samuel comes to Saul and 
Saul tells him, he says, I did everything God asked. I did it all. Aren't you proud? Isn't God proud? And then Samuel makes this statement. He says, why then do I hear sheep and cattle? Well, it's funny because Saul tells him, he says, well, the soldiers, they brought back the best to be sacrificed to God. Isn't that a good idea? Isn't that a good idea, Samuel? And so, so he has this conversation with Samuel, and, and it ends with this famous verse in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that we're all probably aware of. In verse 22, Samuel replies, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. But you have rejected the word of the Lord and he has rejected you. As king. What did Saul do that was so bad that he lost his kingdom? It's simple. He disobeyed. And where did that disobedience begin? Well, Saul thought he had a better idea than God. Every act of disobedience involves putting the desires of the flesh above the will of God. Great idea, God, but I got one better. You know, I think sometimes it's like we're playing let's make a deal with God. Everybody familiar with that game show? Except in this situation, we're the host and God is the contestant. You know, it's like, uh, and I'm going to try to do this in my best announcer voice. All right, let's have our next contestant come on down. Oh my goodness, who are you supposed to be dressed like? God says, uh, well, I'm the creator of the universe oh i see those are galaxies spinning around your head oh that's cute someone thinks they're the center of the universe okay well let's take a look at your first deal i hold in my hand five hundred dollars and i'll give this to you right now if you just say the word or you can have what's behind curtain number Three, what's it going to be? Hmm, you can see God thinking, well, I have this knack for bringing things into the light, so uh, let's see what's behind the curtain. Of course, the curtain goes by, and you hear the, right? 
Oh, I'm sorry, you just want a painting of me doing nothing in the kingdom of heaven. Well, better luck next time. And because we don't want you to feel bad about what was revealed behind the curtain, here's $5 of the 500 you could have had. Wasn't he a great contestant? Let's hear it for the big guy upstairs. <coughs> King Saul thought he could play. Let's make a deal with God. Saul thought he had a better idea than God's idea. See, the problem with Saul was he did not take every thought and make it obedient to Christ. He took his thinking and he exalted it. He put the desires of his flesh above the will of God and he lost everything. Say everything. He lost everything. You know, I think the apostle Peter really understood how what disobedience is related to. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7, he says, "Now to you who believe, this stone is precious." He's talking about Jesus. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. Which is also what they were destined for. So so here, Peter, he's letting us in on a little secret to disobedience. He's telling us that disobedience is really connected to unbelief. Everybody say disobedience is connected to unbelief. Disobedience is an attitude of the mind and it finds its essence in the heart of unbelief and unfaithfulness. Did God say that, really? I mean, will God really provide for you? You know, is God good, really? Really, is he good? Why are so many bad things happening in the world? Does God really heal? You know, in the heart and mind of every struggling, immature Christian, is a losing battle of putting the desires of the flesh above the will of God. And it's fueled by consistent unbelief in the nature and character of who God is. That's the fuel. So if you want to keep the baby bottle, then I encourage you to keep practicing disobedience. Someone say amen. All right, so here's the next principle. And it's really closely tied to disobedience. I mean, they're all just so (laughs) weaved all together. 
if you want to live life well beneath God's very best for you, then you need to do this. You ready? You have to live life as a victim. Or more accurately, you have to live life with a victim mentality. Someone say, ouch. So what is a victim mentality? Here's, here's the definition I'm going to give you. A victim mentality is thinking that it's always someone else's fault for the bad things happening to you. And further than this, it, it manifests as an expectation that something's always going to go wrong. Because bad things always happen to me. See, a, a victim mentality blames others for their circumstances. When something happens, they don't take responsibility for their own actions. A victim mentality is one that gives all of your power away to people and circumstances. So how is this closely tied to disobedience? Well, let's go back to that first act of disobedience that we, we looked at in Genesis chapter 3. Starting in verse 6, we're going to read this again. It says, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, wisdom she took some and ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves verse 8 then the man and his wife heard the sound of the lord god as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the lord god among the trees of the garden but the lord came to the man and said where are you and he answered i heard you in the garden and i was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The man said, Come on, let's man up. This woman, This woman you put here with me, just saying, I didn't ask for her. You put her here with me. I had a dog, and he was really going good for me. I mean, we were buddies. You put this woman with me, and she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So the Lord goes to the woman. What is this you've done? What'd she say? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Wow. So here's a beautiful picture of the marriage between disobedience and the victim mentality. They can go hand in hand sometimes with each other. 
Many times as we fail in some area of our life, we strive to push the blame away from us so that we don't have to face the reality that something might not be wrong with me. See, Adam acted as a victim of Eve's decision. He was standing there the whole time, wasn't he? He was watching her. He's like, what are you doing? You know, you're off close to that tree. You don't hear him saying, hey, God told me we're not supposed to. He's just like, oh, you know, she might eat. She might not. I don't know. As soon as, as soon as he failed, guess what he did? It's her. It's the chick. She's the problem. Eve, what did she do? She was a victim of the serpent. He was so smart. I mean, he just really used big words to just trap her, didn't he? No. Adam and Eve were two very powerful people. Very powerful people who were, they were given dominion over the earth. It's all yours. Just don't touch that stupid tree. Really? Just, just not that. I've made you powerful, the Lord said. It's all, do whatever. Make it, break it, grow it. Do whatever. You're powerful. And they abandoned those positions. And they became powerless victims. All with one bad decision. But they're not the only ones in the Bible who like to play the victim card. Let's go back to King Saul. And his failure to fully obey God. In chapter, chapter 15, verse 20. He's trying to make a good case here. I did obey the Lord. I did, I swear. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I don't like the judgmental tone, by the way, Samuel. Yes, you're judging me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. Verse 21, the soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Oh, good old Saul. Do you hear how he's playing the victim card? Right? Whose fault was it? It was the soldiers. They're the ones who brought the livestock back. Not, it wasn't me. I just brought their king back. But we know that as we continue reading this story, as we continue to go through, guess what? God places responsibility solely on Saul. Even though, and listen to this, even though Saul was acting like a powerless victim, God still related to him as a responsible king. God's like, I don't care how you want to act. I know who I've called you to be. 
and I'm going to hold you responsible to what I say about you. Not your situation and not your circumstance. You want to act like that? That's your problem. I have an expectation of you, king. That's who we are. God's still related to him like he was a responsible king. So what's so attractive to living a victim mentality? I mean, what's the payoff for giving all our power away to people and circumstances? I think there are a few benefits, and I'm just going to give some of them to you if you want to write some of these down. There's just a few benefits. (laughs) A few benefits of living life under a victim mentality. Here's one. Attention and validation. See, when we live in a victim mentality, we can always get good feelings from other people as they express their concern about us, try to help us out, coddle us a little bit. We can get attention. We can get validated. Now, the problem is, unfortunately, that it doesn't usually last very long because people get burned out on you. They get tired and they get worn out by our excessive neediness. So attention and validation. Here's another one. Here's another benefit, a payoff. If you will commit your life to living a victim mentality, you don't have to take risks. See, when you feel like a victim, you tend not to take action. And if you don't take action, then you don't have anything to risk. You know, you don't have to risk rejection. If I step out and try something, what will these people think? Possibility of failure is obliterated if we'll stay right where we're at. Number three, you don't have to take on heavy responsibilities. See, taking responsibility for your own life can be hard work. You have to make difficult decisions sometimes. And sometimes that's just heavy. Now, in the short term, it can feel like the easier choice to not take responsibility. But in the long run, in the long run of your life, You never grow up. You never experience reward. Number four. Living as a victim mentality, it makes you feel right. makes you feel right. See, feeling like a victim, it gives us permission to see everyone else 
or maybe just someone else as wrong. And guess what happens? When everyone is wrong, then you're right. And that can lead to some really pleasurable feelings. You know, I ain't fibbing. We've all been there. And here's number five. Being a victim comes in handy when we don't feel like changing. Being a victim comes in handy when we don't feel like changing. You know, we love to blame our troubled childhood, maybe an abusive or alcoholic spouse, your nasty boss, your painful illness, the economy. I mean, after all, who can expect us to move ahead in life with all of these obstacles? It's just too hard. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? I I realize that bad things happen to us in life. Sometimes really bad things happen. But Paul makes a statement in Romans I want to look at. In chapter 8, verse 28, he says, and we know, everybody say we. We. We, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. As a matter of fact, Paul makes an even bolder statement in uh, verse 37. He says this. He says, no, no, in all things, we are actually more than conquerors through him who loved us. So even after all that Jesus has accomplished for us, how can we keep living in a victim mentality? Well, here's how. This is, how, this is the thing you got to work at, okay? You have to allow an orphan spirit to influence your life. An orphan spirit has to be able to have access to your thoughts. See, the orphan spirit says, no one loves me. I can't trust anyone. Bad things always happen to me. I'm all alone. So I ask you today to hold on to these lies. If you never want to grow up, hold them close. Live Live by the words of probably one of the most famous Broadway children ever. Little Orphan Annie. Because you know what? It's a hard knock life for us. All right, so look at your neighbor and say, grow up!
Okay. <laughs> Moving right along. Yes, let's, let's all laugh and get this uh, nervous energy off of us. Ooh, I don't like this. This is hurtful. Okay, here's the last one I'm going to talk about this morning. The last principle I want to cover to, to be sure to keep us juvenile in our journey. Here it is. Write it down. Protect your pride. Protect your pride. Now, <laughs> I'm not talking about the, you know, being proud of your children's achievements or proud of your spouse for working hard. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm talking about the kind of pride that keeps you in the center. Center of what, you may ask? Hmm? Just the center. It can be the center of everything that's going good in your life. It can be the center of everything that's going bad in your life. It can be the center of your home where the family is all revolving around your drama or your unmet needs. Anytime someone gives a testimony, you're compelled to tell a similar story about yourself. You know, or maybe someone <clears throat> shares a difficult moment in their life and somehow the conversation migrates to one of your trials that seems equally overwhelming. You know, no conversation is complete until you give your uninvited and mostly opinionated viewpoint on the matter. Come on, you can laugh at that. And of course, no one must be spared from the theoretical wisdom that permeates your life. <laughs> theoretical means it's not something you've actually, it's just a theory. So if you never want to experience the fullness of Christ in your life, then you must protect your pride. And I want you to know pride is very powerful and very sneaky. It's a very sneaky problem. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, pride is the very first sin recorded in the Bible. And we know that Genesis is the first, but way back in eternity past, God had created three archangels. And they were God's greatest creation at the time. And of those three archangels, one was more beautiful than anything in creation. Nothing and no one compared to him in beauty and in wisdom. In fact, let's read about him in Ezekiel, chapter 28. Now, this passage of Scripture is, is, is known to be uh, by scholars as 
a lament not only for the king of Tyre, but it is also a story about this archangel. So God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you the day you were created. He literally was a musical instrument. You were anointed the cherub who covers, and I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground and I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Right there in verse 17, he says, and in the NIV it says it like this, it says, your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. Now again, This passage is widely accepted as speaking about the archangel Lucifer. Which means what? Light bearer. Lucifer was the most beautiful creature God ever made. And Lucifer knew it. Because he didn't deal with it right, it cost him everything. cost him his place in heaven and in eternity. Pride has been around for a very long time. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. But as I said a moment ago, pride is very sneaky. Pride does not come in one package only. See, pride is like a two-edged sword that cuts really deep. See, on the one side, pride can be defined as arrogance or haughtiness. Um, it's the kind that we're most familiar with. You know, it's the, it's the attitude that says, I'm better than you, I'm the most important, uh, I should be celebrated, and I doubt that I'm wrong. It's what I call ugly pride. Write that one down. Ugly pride. It's the most identifiable, and it's the one we try to hide the most as Christians. 
Now, the other side of this blade, the other side of pride, is a simply self-centered lifestyle. It's self-centered living. And that kind of pride has pity parties, which is closely related to the victim mentality. It measures life by how will this benefit me? Is this convenient for me? What will this cost me in time or money? I call this pathetic pride. With pathetic pride, even people who serve or help out have a goal of being noticed or gaining points, you know, somehow. Pathetic pride gives us the power to judge others who we have identified as trying to get noticed. Whether it's, a, uh, whether it's a, a very active form of ugly pride or it's a passive um, in nature of pathetic pride, I guarantee it will keep you stalled out. You will never get past the starting line. Now, we know that in Ephesians 4, it tells us that Jesus gave us the fivefold ministry to equip and mature us, right? But see, pride has a way of moving us to the wrong side of God's help. Here's what I mean. Go to James chapter 4. Verse 3. It says that he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, this is like so important, this truth, that Peter actually repeats uh, the same verse in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, or first, starting with verse 5. He's encouraging. He says, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So, maturity comes as we humble ourselves and as we receive the gifts that Jesus uh, came to give us through the fivefold ministry. Do you get that? Maturity comes when we humble ourselves and receive the gifts of the fivefold ministry in our life. However, <laughs> we can stay immature by living in pride. In fact, Pride puts us on the wrong side of God's help. It's like playing football. You see, when we, when we live in humility, God is the quarterback. 
and we get to be either a receiver or maybe a halfback. I looked that up on Wikipedia. <laughs> Just want to be honest. I was going to say runner, but I thought that was too ubiquitous, so I thought, no, there's one position that gets to run the ball. It's the halfback. So God's the quarterback, and, and he calls the plays, right? And we run them. No, you're going to hit here, then you're going to zigzag, and over here, and I'm going to hit you right over here. I'm going to fake to this guy, and then I'm going to give it to you, and you're going to run for the touchdown. That's humility. But see, when we live in pride, we suddenly find God as a defensive lineman. And no matter how hard we try, we just can't get around him. But this isn't the fun part yet. See, here, listen to what else happens when we, when we protect our pride. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says this. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This is the one we love to quote in King James. Pride goeth before the falleth. <laughs> now, we've all seen like those funny parodies, right, of, of the guy who like gets the football on the, on the field, even though he didn't want it, right? And, and now he's like some big linebacker is, is coming and chasing after him all over the field. And so they just zigzag back and forth because he's like, oh, I don't want to get hit, you know. Well, you know, eventually what happens is the runner gets, what, caught, and he gets tackled to the ground. Well, as we run back and forth in pride, trying to get around God, eventually God says enough is enough. And he tackles us. And we fall. To the ground. Sometimes we use we we lose yardage in life. Sometimes we go down where we started. You see, God in his infinite love and wisdom, he refuses to allow us to move the ball down the field without his guidance. Humility takes us from being the center of everything. And it puts God there where he belongs. Pride, whether it's ugly pride or pathetic pride, it keeps us from scoring points in life. Psalm 10 verse 4 says, In his pride the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. You see, when we, practice, or when we protect our pride, there is never enough room in here for God. Our thoughts are constantly consumed with me. Whether they're good thoughts or bad thoughts. There's no room for God. 
fact, if you, if you want to get an idea, a real good idea of what pride can do for you, read the whole Psalm 10. Just, just read the whole, whole thing. Okay, I'm going to close with just a couple more of these benefits of protecting pride. In verse, uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, it says, When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. And, and let's not forget Proverbs 29, 23. It says, A man's pride will bring him low. But the humble in spirit will retain honor. Now let's reread this like this. A man's self-centered thinking, good or bad, will bring him humiliation. But the humble in spirit will retain honor. So if you enjoy humiliation, by all means, protect your pride. I mean, what? Would life be without those unforgettable moments when you've had those epic fails? You know, the stuff that people talk about for years, even after you've matured beyond it, <laughs> right? I mean, who does not want to be the person uses the example for how not to do something? I mean, that's popularity too. Everybody knows your name. Well, think of it like this. Pride, which is self-centered thinking, will produce self-preservation. And living in self-preservation will keep you well below God's very best. So I close with this, Luke 17, verse 33. Self-centered thinking produces self-preservation. Self-pervation keeps us under God's best. Jesus says to us, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Look at your neighbor and say, grow up. All right, worship team, if you wouldn't mind coming. I'm just going to, we're going to enter some time of worship now. And here's, here's what I want to challenge you before you get too talky, okay? Before you kind of lift yourself out of the moment. I hope conviction stays with you. In fact, we're going to have uh, the altar team who will be up here at some point this morning as we're worshiping. You know, I, I believe that maybe there are some even here today who don't even really know the Lord. Who really maybe don't even have Him in your heart. I just, I want to ask you, please. Let the pride leave your heart. Come to Jesus today. Make him your Lord and make him your Savior.
Or maybe you got saved when you were young or years ago. I don't know. And you're just, you know you're not where you're supposed to be. The proper response to everything I've talked about is repentance. It's not justification. It's not pushing it away and blaming someone else. God holds us responsible. But God, because of his love, because of his work that he did in Jesus, he can reverse so much in our lives. So just stand up with me. In fact, well, let's have the ushers come forward. I need to take our offering up as well. Ushers, if you would come forward at this time. have your money to pay for the class you've signed up, please do that now if you can. Just put it in the offering and write in the